0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new crew to provide backup for the sea services.
1: It's not up to me to tell our admirals and leaders in the Pentagon what to do. Uh, We're here to help. Uh, We're here to advocate. And uh, where they may not be able to go or, you know, people they may not be able to talk to because of uh, restrictions of being on active duty, we are more than happy to do that.
0: The struggle ahead for small businesses to keep serving the government.
2: These are businesses that on the one hand, the administration say they want uh, to help. But on the other hand, these new rules are going to hit them disproportionately, Francis, and it adds costs to their. Top line as well.
0: And a big bug bounty payoff for the Defense Digital Service.
3: Across those bounties, that represented 25,000 hours of researcher time dedicated to these systems, which is pretty impressive. And at the end of the day, all of the researchers across all these bounties got paid out over $650,000 of DOD money as the the bounty, the incentive uh, to actually go in and find these vulnerabilities.
0: It's Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Federal contractors have a January 30th deadline to pay all their employees $15 an hour. The new final rule from the Labor Department affects new contracts and renewals and extensions. The final rule indexes the hourly wage to inflation starting in 2023. The Internal Revenue Service is about seven months away from the next step in its agency-wide application development future. An agency spokesperson tells FedScoop the IRS will release a request for quotations for the Enterprise Development Operations Service contract in June of next year. The agency expects to award it in the first quarter of fiscal 23. It could be worth up to two and a half billion dollars one of the recommendations of the national security commission on artificial intelligence may solve the digital services challenge the federal government's up against dave nichapier is writing about it at fedscoop.com dave welcome thanks for coming on today what is behind the idea of a digital service academy and how would it work welcome
4: Basically lawmakers are interested in potentially creating what would be akin to a military academy but for civil servants where you train these people over the course of several years and hopefully they walk away from the, uh, the, the learning uh, with a, a degree that is joint undergrad and master's degree uh, that can really help agencies with the sort of deep digital skills that they need, not just the surface level stuff.
0: The Government Accountability Office did a roundtable discussion October 13th, and you write in this piece that at at that roundtable, one agency had more than 2,000 openings for people who would be qualified to come out and work for the government after that Digital Services Academy uh, training, if such a thing existed. What would have to happen next in order for an idea like this to gain some traction at least?
4: The Government Accountability Office in its report to Congress is basically saying that the next steps are to figure out just what is the scope of an academy like this. They really need to sit down and figure out logistically what the size of a cohort can be because there's a lot of things on the back end that need to be figured out, such as if agencies can actually take these people on once they graduate.
0: You write, skills could address updating legacy IT systems, introducing advanced technologies like AI, managing cyber risks in cloud environments, and many other issues. Um, One of the things you point point out about the cloud environments that sounds like a tremendous benefit is there are some of these jobs that contractors can't do because of the classification of data and systems or inherently governmental functions and other kinds of things.
4: Yeah, too often uh, agencies are relying on contractors to to do some of this work, and then they realize, wait, this is sensitive information that contractors really shouldn't be handling. We would much rather trust in-house talent with this this data uh, and th- these jobs. And until they have that in-house talent that truly has the skill sets that they need, it can't just be somebody who was trained through a reskilling. Uh, seminar. This needs to be somebody that comes from this digital service academy that's being floated.
0: Dave Nitschapier, thanks very much. great story on fedscoop.com. Thanks. You can read Dave's story and more about all of these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. A scheduling note, you'll get a new Daily Scoop podcast tomorrow and then a break for the Thanksgiving holiday. After Thanksgiving, the next new Daily Scoop podcast is next Monday, November 29th. The vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee, Congresswoman Elaine Lurie, is pushing for a huge infrastructure boost for shipyards. She's co-sponsoring legislation that would spend more than $25 billion on shipyards all the sea services use. Admiral Jamie Fogo, U.S. Navy, retired as dean of the new Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League. He's former commander of U.S. Naval Forces Europe Africa and former commander of Allied Joint Forces Naples. Admiral, welcome. Thanks for joining me. It's great to talk to you again, sir. How do you propose at your new center to take an issue like Shipyard, study it, and produce something that contributes to the dialogue around an issue like that? Welcome.
1: Francis, thank you very much, and uh, it's great to be back with you. I would tell you that this is not uh, all about just the United States Navy. This is about the maritime services writ large. So when we talk about uh, the maritime and the naval century, we're talking about uh, the United States Navy, the United States Marine Corps, the United States Coast Guard, the Merchant Marine, military Sealift command that takes care of our gray-hulled vessels with civilian mariners on them. Like my favorite ship in the United States Navy, USS Mount Whitney. It was my command ship in 6th Fleet and uh, is currently in the Black Sea uh, doing uh, a deterrence patrol. And uh, you know things are kind of dicey over there. and include in this portfolio for the Center for Maritime Strategy here uh our shipbuilding uh industry and our industrial base. And so this plan that uh Congressman Luria is talking about the SIOP the, the shipyard integrated operations plan 25 billion dollars over an extended period of time is is welcome. It is something that I think we need uh to recapitalize uh our industrial base particularly shipbuilding, ship ship repair, modernization. And you can't uh, conduct presence operations or deterrence around the world without uh, maintenance facilities, dry docks, and you can't produce fantastic new ships uh, like our string of aircraft carriers that are coming along here, Enterprise, Dory Miller, John F. Kennedy, uh, Ford soon to be out and deployed uh, without a very strong industrial base. So, um, we've got to start there. We've got to boost our ability uh, to not only build ships, but repair ships and modernize ships and keep them at sea so that they can do uh, work on behalf of not just our national interests, but those of our allies and partners. So, I am all for it.
0: When you were in uniform, what were the ways that you saw uh, organizations like you belong to now most effective, have the most impact, in driving the uh, the change that the Navy needed and now in your role, the other sea services need uh, to continue forward progress?
1: Well, you know, I'm gonna take you back to uh, uh, probably uh, 2007. And that's uh, when I went to work for arguably, in my humble opinion, uh, one of the best chairman of the Joint Chiefs we ever had, Admiral Mike Mullen. And I was with Admiral Mullen for two years as his executive assistant. You know, as, uh, as jobs go uh, in the Navy, Uh, everybody aspires to command and I appreciated and enjoyed my command tours more than anything else. But that two years with uh, the chairman was one of the most fascinating jobs I ever had in the Pentagon. And whenever Admiral Mullen started a new job, he used to say, you know, I come in and, uh, you know, I don't act like I know everything. I start, uh, with the mantra, I will listen, learn, educate, and then lead. And so uh, I have adopted that mantra. Uh, I started uh, uh, with the center last week. Uh, It's like a startup in Silicon Valley. We're bringing people on, we're bringing on adjuncts and ad hocs and folks that will be uh, uh, a a tiered level of fellows, uh, resident, and non-resident. And and there is a plethora of people out there that have contacted me that wanna help. And uh, as we move forward, with our platform, I think it's important under the mantra, listen, learn, educate, and lead, that we try to cultivate an understanding uh, for our leadership on Capitol Hill, uh, about the United States Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, Merchant Marine, and about the industrial base that we just talked about. Uh, it's going to be our charter to try to engage, and uh, when asked, help uh, educate our congressional leaders in the executive branch on what we do in the maritime domain. And the same thing goes for the American people. Uh, The Navy League of the United States has already done some terrific work on maritime policy. And they have a great paper out on a perspective on maritime policy for 2021 to 2022. They do that every two years. Working with uh, those vice presidents and that committee uh, to adopt uh, the the statements and the goals and objectives of the Navy League's maritime policy, and to try to inculcate those in how we build a much more powerful uh, maritime base here in this country. Additionally, there'll be uh, a number of different forms of media, uh, engagement, uh, seminars, webinars, podcasts, like I'm doing with you, and uh, some thought pieces and some papers on things that uh, we think we might be able to do better, or we think uh, uh, there might be a gap or a seam in a capability in this country, particularly in the maritime domain that we need to fill. And we'll be asking for our congressional leadership to help. The last thing I'll tell you is it's, it's, not, it's not up to me to tell our admirals and leaders in the Pentagon what to do. Uh, we're here to help. Uh, we're here to advocate. And uh, where they may not be able to go or, you know, people they may not be able to talk to because of uh, restrictions of being on active duty, we are more than happy to do that.
0: We'll put a link to that paper in the show notes today at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. You have the advantage, though, of having very, very recently been in uniform, knowing what those admirals and generals are thinking about what's top of mind for them what are some of the most important things that you think those folks are thinking about talking about right now
1: yeah well you know I, I, we just uh they just had a war game up in newport and uh i was not in attendance but uh i heard about it. global 14. you know one of the reasons that the navy league wanted to bring this center forward uh is because the navy league has been chartered since uh november 20th of 1902 we're coming up on 120th anniversary next year and whereas the Navy League uh, takes great care of our sailors when they come into ports, uh, we do fleet weeks to publicize the, uh, the great uh, advantage that we have in maritime power in the United States around the major ports uh, all over the U.S., New York, San Diego, et cetera. And we also run the annual Sea, Air and Space Symposium, largest ever last August. we got another one coming up in April. We had seventeen thousand people at National Harbor who were just dying to get together after two years of COVID. All that's important, but uh, we didn't have a uh, uh, a center for advocacy of maritime power until now, until this center. And the reason is because we're seeing uh, emerging threats to the United States. You know, the National Defense uh, 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 Strategy calls out five threats: China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and violent extremist organization. When I was on active duty, and when we talked. When I was in Naples uh, two years ago, Francis, I think I might have mentioned to you, uh, we faced four out of five of those threats in Europe and Africa, mm-hmm. China, Russia, uh, Iran, uh, and violent extremist organizations, but uh, thankfully not North Korea. And we had our hands full, and I have my hands full, in trying to deal with that and deter and defend uh, our national interests and those of partners and allies. Uh, additionally, there's been some decline in our industrial base and our ability to uh to build ships, particularly um, civilian mariners and civilian ships, uh, to compete out on the world stage uh, in delivering cargo. We're an island nation. Ninety percent of our commerce goes by the sea. We should be putting those uh, that commerce on American-flagged vessels. Uh, I'm disturbed by what's going on out in Los Angeles. You got 127 ships waiting to go into port. Um, you know, this the, the place is too blocked. You can't get in. You can't get out. We've got to fix that. We've got to modernize uh, our port facilities. And I think uh, this is an era of uh, uh, it's very difficult to uh, obtain political consensus on the Hill. So a center that advocates for uh, maritime strategy and maritime power, I think, will be welcome as we try to walk our congressional leaders through the reasons why we think we need to do things or we think we need to resource things. Uh, whether it's the industrial base, shipbuilding, or the Navy or one of the other sea services.
0: Jamie, congratulations on your uh, new position and on standing up this center. And I'm grateful for a chance to talk to you about it and uh, to learn what else is on your mind. It's great to see you, my friend.
1: Francis, thank you so much. Great to see you. Uh, Congratulations on your podcast. Uh, Best wishes with the podcast in the future. And to you and all your listeners, have a very happy Thanksgiving.
0: You can find a link to the Center for Maritime Strategy and today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says another continuing resolution is coming, at least one more. That's driving some activity in the contractor sector that you may not expect this time of year. Larry Allen's president of Allen Federal Business Partners, writing about it in the Week Ahead newsletter. Larry, it's good to see you, my friend. You've got three things that contractors should be thinking about this time of year, given where we are market-wise. I want to start with number two. You're right. Remember, we're still operating under a CR. It'll take some time until agencies have their regular appropriations. There's talk now there may not be regular appropriations in uh, fiscal 22. What's a contractor do with that at this point? Welcome.
2: Francis. I think that contractors should not put too much stock into the prospects of a year long CR. You're correct in saying that that's a topic being discussed really more in the Senate than in the house idea of having the government run uh, for an entire year under a continuing resolution i don't think that's going to happen for the simple reason that that puts the department of defense at an incredible disadvantage in terms of training and readiness Uh, it actually would cost them money uh, to operate under a year-long cr i really don't think that there's enough congressional support to have a weakened Department of Defense going in through uh, all of FY22. So for no other reason, I think the appropriators will figure something out. But I think Majority Leader Schumer is absolutely right. I think we're gonna have CRs that take us probably into calendar year 2022. It doesn't look, Francis, right now, like Congress is in any hurry to come to agreement on full-year appropriations, so I think uh, we'll see something maybe uh, all along that line at the end of January, beginning of February in that time frame. For contractors, that means that, look, no new starts, business as usual, things that are underway get to keep doing being done. Uh, you can do tweaks, you can do add-ons, uh, but you can't start any net new projects that require those appropriated funds. Uh, the longer that happens, The more frustrating it gets for for companies, quarter one in the federal year is usually a little slow, but when you start getting into a slow quarter two, Francis, and everything kind of gets packed into the back end of the year even more than usual, uh, that doesn't help contractors and it doesn't help the government.
0: Does it matter to an individual vendor or to the vendor base collectively whether So, for example, a CR runs December 3rd for a week, and then we get another one for a week, and then we get another one for a week, as opposed to December 3rd, this CR expires, and we have another one that takes us to January, another one that takes us to February. Does that term matter for how somebody should plan in particular or the vendor base as a whole, Larry?
2: It does matter. It matters more, Francis, from a perspective of someone in government, but because it matters to people in government, it has a ancillary effect on government contractors as well federal government always has to prepare as if a shutdown could occur if congress fails to appropriate new funds now nobody's calling for that right now but still you have to plan and have your continuity of operations being ready to go just in case that affects day-to-day operations that affects the ability of contractors to have communications with their government customers uh customers aren't sure if they're going to get paid uh, if a continuing resolution should lapse Uh, so that's a very real issue for them well nobody really likes crs uh, if you're going to have a cr francis people would prefer to see it be For a month rather than a week.
0: The third item that you write about is sit down with your compliance team, make sure you understand the new mandates that are coming soon to a contract near you. You've got the vaccine mandate, 72-hour cybersecurity breach reporting requirements, new Buy American requirements, SCRM requirements, contractor minimum wage changes, and what you term an as yet unknown eco-friendly evaluation factor, for contractors regarding carbon footprint and climate change? That's a ton of stuff to think about at the same time you're trying to figure out what your revenue stream looks like for the next three or four months.
2: It's a ton of stuff, and they're new government-only requirements. And if you're a commercial, mostly contractor, somebody that sells, like, say, through the GSA schedules or even NASA suit, Many of those companies, Francis, they do significant government business, but their government business pales in comparison to what they do in the commercial market. These are companies that are going to have to sit down and uh, say, hey, all of these new requirements are going to add costs to our company. Is it worth us to continue on as a prime contractor? Is it worth for us to continue to uh, participate in the government market generally? Uh, Do we have the systems? What will it cost to create the systems to comply with these various mandates and requirements? And what does it look like to be termed an environmentally conscious, eco-friendly contractor above and beyond established standards like Energy Star? Nobody really has the answer to that. It's also going to hit small businesses hard. These are businesses that on the one hand, the administration say they want to, to help. But on the other hand these new rules are going to hit them disproportionately francis and it adds costs to their top line as well so i think this is a good time look when the market's slower and you're not doing a ton of sales you know these things are coming to your contracts some of them are already here you've got to really sit down and evaluate how you approach the government market does it make sense to be a prime are you better off being a sub you know, what, what is it? We know that thousands of government contractors have left the government market over the past few years. I hate to see that happen, but my instinct and experience tells me that every time the government starts putting in unique terms and conditions that really don't exist in a company's commercial world, that a number of companies elect to do just that
0: all right the last item which is actually the first item in what you're writing about um is making sure your messaging on new solutions and features is getting out you write that's getting harder to get virtual meetings with government people why is that do you think
2: francis anecdotally i am hearing from clients uh, and other consultants across the board that it is increasingly difficult to get federal customers or prospects to sit down for even a Zoom call or another virtual type of meeting. Uh, and I'm not sure why that is. I mean, some of it can be attributed to the fact that, as I talked about earlier, continuity of operations planning, you've got to have a prepare for a shutdown. Uh, federal people are ensconced in their own planning meetings. But a lot of that really took place in October and the earlier part of November. Uh, There are always meetings, but that's really when the heavier meetings hit. Uh, I just kind of sense that people are putting off those discussions. Uh, They're kind of in on hold for things that are not absolutely mission critical, Francis. Uh, And they may be suffering from virtual meeting burnout, which I think is fair. I think a lot of people in industry and government are, are suffering from that. But what it means for contractors is you have to be creative to make sure that your message is still getting across. And this is a good time relatively to do that because your federal buyer has the time to look. So if there, you're not getting those discussions online, you should be looking at social media, you should be looking at marketing, uh, and, uh, meeting participation, conference participation. How is it that you can make sure you get your message across. Uh, it may be a little, require a little bit more invention, maybe a little bit frustrating uh, over and above what it usually is, but this is still the time of year to do that, uh, and contractors should make the most of the opportunity.
0: Larry Allen of Allen Federal Business Partners, thanks very much for coming on today.
2: Francis, thank you. Have a great Holiday.
0: You can find a link to read more about Larry's top three things contractors should know right now in today's show notes at the Daily Scoop I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. A huge list of technology stars are coming to the Security Transformation Summit Thursday, December 2nd. Speakers from CISA, the Defense Digital Service, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, and a lot of other federal agencies will be at the virtual event. You can see the agenda and sign up now through the link in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Digital Service is reviewing the data from another round of bug bounties. Those bounties have uncovered holes in the Pentagon's cyber defenses and holes in the defenses of companies in the defense industrial base. Daniel Bardenstein is cybersecurity expert at the Defense Digital Service. In the newest episode of Billy Mitchell's podcast, Let's Talk About IT, Bardenstein says there are three categories where DDS tries to make a cyber impact.
3: The first is rapid response, uh, where When certain circumstances come up or certain events come up, uh, we're often tapped or will jump in to help provide rapid support, uh, bring the tools that we develop or, you know, partnerships or or close familiarity with uh, the private sector and modern technologies. A good example of this being uh, our work with Operation Warp Speed, which was the U.S. government's initiative to rapidly develop and distribute COVID-19 vaccines and therapeutics uh, for which DDS and NSA co-led on cybersecurity. So... That, As an example, uh, uh, unprecedented for lack of a better word, uh, sort of initiative with this rapid needs to quickly secure a very large swath of both public sector, um, government entities, but also private sector companies. Uh, The next category is we also build new capabilities. Uh, So oftentimes that's in terms of new products or programs. So Hack the Pentagon, like you mentioned, would fall under uh, that category. And I can dive into that a little bit more in a sec. We've also built uh, several other tools over the years. Uh, CrossFeed was one that we developed, uh, which uh, helps, I guess you could say, it's in the attack service management uh, segment within security. So it helps um, organizations or components better understand uh, what assets they have on the open internet and what are the vulnerabilities in those assets, because that's become an increasingly popular way for all sorts of cyber adversaries to go in and, and infiltrate various victim networks. And that's a, a tool that we uh, kind of co-built with CISA, the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, and uh, have since open sourced and kind of give, given off to, to CISA to to manage from here. And then we've also developed, for example, a tool in the last year or two called Clone Wars, um, which is a really unique tool that helps organizations find uh you know, potential uh, uh, data leakage and uh, uh, open source uh, data code repositories. So we've you know, we've ra- rapid response to critical events, we build the capabilities. Um, and we also do some advisory work, and we've done advisory work on operational technology. So that includes industrial control systems. So that's your uh, building automation systems or water plants or water treatment plants, all that kind of stuff in IoT. But really, at the, at the end of the day, what are ultimate objective is, is to try to change the culture around cybersecurity within DoD. Uh, We don't just want to play infinite whack-a-mole in terms of identifying vulnerabilities and systems within DoD, but actually try to get DoD to engage more with the private sector, with private sector researchers, and kind of close the gap between where um, kind of the frontier is in cybersecurity and and where DoD is.
4: Uh, Let's go back to Hack the Pentagon, because I think, you know, uh, that, that sort of where DDS got its roots um, back uh, under Ash Carter as secretary of defense when he launched DDS originally. Um, It was, it's sort of trademark program in cybersecurity. So um, you know, several years later, it's still up and running and definitely uh, kind of spread throughout the military and different services. So what's the evolution of that look like and sort of what is going on in that today?
3: Definitely. We're actually celebrating, this is the fifth year of Hack the Pentagon. So we uh, have collected some metrics that we're able to share about the success of the program and what it's been able to accomplish. Uh, But in terms of the history, Hack the Pentagon started its first incarnation in 2016. Uh, The the goal at the time was just to change, again, DOD's culture uh, and and attitude towards working with ethical or white hat hackers or security researchers in the community. Historically, there's always been a bit of that tension kind of mutually where DOD doesn't necessarily always trust folks who aren't cleared or aren't part of the internal apparatus. And security researchers uh, were afraid to really uh, engage with DOD for fear of maybe facing consequences for even trying to point out um, vulnerabilities or, or just have them be ignored. So the the, the initial uh, scope or attempt of hack the Pitagana was just to prove that this relationship could work. And was really looking at this kind of more Vanilla, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, websites, public facing systems. Um, so could we expose some of uh, services, uh, you know, websites uh, to external hackers and they would responsibly you know, find and disclose vulnerabilities? Um, had a number of really good successes early on. We did uh, some more interesting and more tailored uh engagements, bug bounties with various groups, and some of them were on IoT or Internet of Things devices, some of them were on more complex devices. But we've gone to this evolution now We're five years in, we have a number of you know, repeat customers or partners, so to speak. So for example, uh, the Air Force writ large has been a great partner, and we're running the, the sixth and seventh versions of Hack the Air Force. The Army, were are uh, planning Hack the Army 4.0, um, so we have, you know, growing maturity within a lot of these organizations, we've tested increasingly interesting uh, and sensitive uh, assets uh, of all types. Um, and we're also starting to move now into more um, novel cases. So like I said, you know, a lot of this stuff is really just based around, uh, started on more general uh, enterprise IT architecture, like I mentioned, your public facing infrastructure or servers or laptops, etc. You know, we have run within the last 18 months uh, a bug bounty on prototypes of secure hardware that DARPA was funding uh, in academic labs around the world. That was really, really complicated and really, really interesting. And maybe this will be the future hardware that's in all of our devices in five to 10 years. Um, we've run, uh, uh, we're, we're trying to formulate how else we could leverage this kind of crowdsource approach, not to just generalize uh, or, or to more traditional IT infrastructure, but also bring it to example for to machine learning or AI systems, right? Could you actually have ethical hackers, not just exploit a traditional website, but could they actually break into and an impact uh, a machine learning model that's making critical decisions? Um, so we've had just a, n- a number of success successes. We're growing the program just to have more and more uh, different customers and partners. Uh, we're trying to evolve the types of assets and the complexity of assets that we're trying to test. And I think overall, after the five years, and like I said, I'm happy to share some of the metrics, we've run over 40 bug bounties, we've worked with over 2000 researchers, so ethical white hat hackers, literally around the world. So not just in the US, but in Canada, India, Europe, et cetera. Uh, They've discovered over, I think 2,500 or 3000 vulnerabilities, a good percentage of which are are deemed critical on the CVSS scoring. So we're not just finding less important things. what other what other fun facts uh, that uh, all across those bounties that represented 25,000 hours of researcher time dedicated to these systems, which is pretty impressive. And at the end of the day, all of the researchers across all these bounties got paid out over 650,000 dollars of DoD money as the the bounty, the incentive uh, to actually go in and find these vulnerabilities. So we've really found uh, we've really um, found this nice equilibrium. And then one other thing I'll say in terms of kind of the dev- the evolution and how far we've come from just Trying this proof of concept five years ago, we've actually, through some of these bounty programs, identified zero days, zero day vulnerabilities in uh, infrastructure, you know, pr- uh, vendor infrastructure. And so, you know, when out there you have uh, this black market, you have all these different ways that hackers uh, can not so responsibly disclose zero days, whether it's dropping them on Twitter or selling them to governments. We've actually found this good way, where this good equilibrium, where researchers. Are able to find these zero days, they get compensated and recognized fairly, and then both the vendor and the DoD component that owns that device that has the zero day can go responsibly fix it kind of quietly and effectively. Um, So it's really been impressive how far we've been able to come in the last five years.
0: Daniel Bardenstein of the Defense Digital Service on the latest episode of the Let's Talk About IT podcast hosted by FedScoop's Billy Mitchell. You can listen to that episode and subscribe to Billy's podcast in today's show notes at TheDailyScoopPodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. Now, if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow. Until then, I'm the host, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.